Alright, welcome to another edition and another reading. Hey, y'all know what the title is already. It's titled, like always, and let me go down. What is what we call, what is gold? Chapter 3, Section 1. Another lengthy part of this chapter. And like always, you know, for those who come in for the first time, you know, make sure you like the video. You know, you know, comment at the end of this video, thoughts and feelings, and go back to previous um broadcast of this reading of this book and description of the book is titled at the end of every stream. So there's more transparency what I'm reading. And always, um, as y'all know, um, this is a continued reading. Descriptions are labeled at the end of the video. Um, always comment, subscribe, and like the video. But I would love if anybody that comment in the chat room or anything, if you have watched so far and like what you heard from what I'm reading so far, or what is the case for gold, or what is gold. For lack of better terms, I hope this is stimulating. Hope you're learning something. I know I have because I'm not a gold expert. Um, I always heard about gold, always thought gold was just a, pint, a nice little shiny something that you walk around your neck and stuff. I knew it was money, but I didn't know how deep the rabbit hole goes in terms of gold itself. So now, me reading and getting more understanding. I have more appreciation for gold. Alright, let's begin. Gold is insurance. As discussed, hold on. gold is, is insurance. As discussed in the last chapter, gold is not an investment, it is not a commodity, it is not a paper contract, and it is not digital. Gold is simply an element, atomic number 79, it is the pose of complex, it is robust, in the face of internalization of monetary collapse and financial market complexity. Owning gold is insurance against the current economic climate and unstability monetary system. Gold is the anti-complex assets and therefore one asset that investors should own in a complex world. Let's take a look at what I mean by complexity and consider the way gold can ensure us against complex systematic risk. Complexity theory and systematic analysis or system analysis. When, analy when analyzing the state of the world economy and the potential for collapse, I use complexity models. Complexity is a branch of physical that explores the impact of recursor functions and density connection network it is the science of how the nodes are interconnected and how they interact the interaction led to change behavior also <coughs> called adaptive behavior which can produce complexity or completely unexpected outcomes
The Federal Reserve, however, used stock-chested equilibrium or equilibrium models, which are not a good representation of how the real world works. Such technical terms are a bit daunting. Stealing these concepts are not all that difficult. So what is an equilibrium model? A good example I think all investors can relate to is an airplane. An airplane is made of tons of aluminum, steel, and other heavy physical components, and yet it managed to fly a high altitude. How does it do that? The answer is that that an airplane is shaped and engineered in a certain way. The wings is flat on the bottom and the curve on the top so that more air goes under the wing than on top of the wing. The curvature on top blocking it. The shape provides lift. How does the airplane get air moving under the wings? It, it has engines that give it thrust. Which thrust and lift? It's up in the air. But now it needs to turn because the air traffic control says it needs to go one place instead of another. How does it do that? It used a rubber. A rubber. When the plane needs to descend, there are flats that change the shape of the bottom of the wing, and so on. Now picture the Fed chair as a pilot in the cockpit with her hands on the control. She can use flaps to change the shape of the wing. She can use a throttle to give it a little more or less thrust. And she can use a rubber to turn the plane to ports or starboard as needed. Let's say there's a little bit of turbulence. The pilot says we're going to go up a little bit higher to get above the turbulence and give the passenger a smooth flight. If the plane is losing altitude, the plot gives it a little more thrust or lift to make it go up. The Fed chair and sitting in the boardroom of the Federal Reserve in Washington thinks thinking of the economic as a plane that nor going quite fast enough or not flying quite high enough. So a little more thrust in the form of plotting. Hold on. Form of printing money, maybe a little rubber in terms of foreign guidance and maybe a little lift in terms of quantitative ease will help the plane achieve its objective. That's an equilibrium model. Hold on. Their models, one problem with this model. The economic is not an equilibrium system. Let me read that again. For those who going to get back to replay. The economic the economics is not an equilibrium or equilibrium system. Now it's gonna go into why. The economic is a complex system. What is complex system? Imagine that the airplane suddenly turns into a butterfly. That's an example of complexity. Complexity produces the unexpected or what technically called an emergent property. An emergent property is a developing you don't see coming. So here's the Fed 
is trying to fly the airplane using all the monetary policies tools but with the complexity risk that the plane performs in completely unexpected ways. Take the case of the banking system. Banks have never repaired the damage from the 2008 crisis nor have they fixed the issues that led to the collapse in the first place. You'll hear many commentaries and regulators say that the bank's balance sheet are stronger and bank capital ratios are higher. That's true. Still, there is not a strong enough relative to the risk and the system is still unstable. Now, before I continue, let me do this. Because I'm about to go in on certain banks. And let me... No, I'm not going to turn that off. I will turn it off because that's annoying. One second, people. Let me do this. Because I'm, I am definitely about to go in now. Because this, this is getting very interesting now. I know I should do this when I when I was waiting for people to come in, but I will do it now. Cause look like this is about to get a little bit more interesting, and I would like to see. Get my pencil and ready. I want to highlight certain things. And always when y'all read, I advocate y'all highlight with a pencil. Most I prefer than a highlighter because highlight leaves marks and books. You know, a pencil is better. Or you could take a nice little note notepad book and jot down your notes while reading. And I'm trying to wait to my system. Okay there. Okay, it's loading up now. Good. Okay, that I present to most people that will come aboard and watch this. So let me continue on. Okay. The five largest banks in the United States today are largely than they were in 2008. They have a higher percentage of total bank assets and their Derivatives books are significantly larger than the banks. They were too big to fail in 2008. Are bigger and more dangerous today. So they say. And let me. 
Okay. When you have a concentration of assets in a small number of banks that all do business with one another, mostly in derivatives, there is a high degree of density. This means that if one small problem arises anywhere in the system that um, pre turbidate I mean it would pre turbidation will spread through a system rapidly. Then it called continuity or I should pronounce continuogen or in the jargon of the IMF spilled over. Whatever you call such a financial disturbance, contingency or spillover, it has the same domino effect on the banking system. What is even more daunting about complex systems is that the most catastrophic outcome can occur from minutes. Actually impossible to perceive or measure change in initial conditions. It does not make large causes to produce large consequences. Quite trivial or quite trivial events such as unexpected failure of the small unknown brokers in a distant part of the world can cause systematic collapse depending on linkage at the time of a failure. Consider this metaphor. A mountain has a steeper pitch section near the top. It has been snowing for weeks and the snow is piled up. There apparently avalanche is dangerous or apparently avalanche is dangerous. Experts can see the wind sweep snow leaning, leaning in an unstable way. The snowpack will clearly collapse at some point. The snowpack can persist for a while. Perhaps the more daring Scott skiers want to ski underneath it because the view is nice or because they're daredevils. One day a snowflake falls bit um hits the mountain and disturb a few other snowflakes. This disturbance starts a small chute a smart chute that turns into a bigger slide. It gathers momentum, bringing more snow from it and creates force. <coughs> Suddenly the whole mountainside and destabilize and comes crashing down, killing skiers in the path and burying a village below. When we go back and do a post monitoring, whom do we blame? Do we blame the snowflake or do we blame the unstable snow conditions? Or of course we need to blame the unstable snow conditions because even though a single snowflake starts the avalanche, it was going to happen anyway. If it wasn't that, then the particular snowflake, it could have been the one before or the one after. It is unstability or, or it's, it is the instability of the mountainside that gives rise to the avalanche and the destruction in the paths or in its paths. The mountain snowpack was a complex system waiting to collapse. Get it? Good. Here's another example. Let's say you're in a theater with 100 people listening to a presentation. Suddenly two people get up and run out the room. What do you do? What does everyone else do? Odds are you do nothing. You may think their behavior is strange or rude, 
perhaps the people who went out got an urge text or urgent text or were um, late for an appointment. Regardless, you're going to sit there and watch the rest of the presentation. Hold on. Okay. Now let's say that instance of just two people suddenly 60 people got up and ran out of the theater. What would you do? What would the other do? I dare say you'd be right behind them because you would assume those people knew something you didn't. Perhaps the place was on fire. Maybe there was a bomb threat. But you don't want to be the last to know. You flee the theater. That's an example of adaptive behavior based on a variable called the critical threshold. The critical threshold is the point at which the behavior or other affect your behavior. In the example above, your critical threshold T for fleeing the theater is greater than 2 or less than 60, which can be represented mathematically as 2 less than greater than T less than 60. Everyone in the theater may have a different critical threshold and those thresholds may cause or may change frequently depending on external conditions or your mood or any other factors. The theater goes may remain calm and seated if just a few people ran out. Still the entire audience may suddenly erupt in panic when more than a few start to run. It's difficult to know just what the tipping point for a full-scale panic behavior is. To get a sense of the complexity in capital market imaging applies this simple example not to a hundred people in a theater but to a hundred million investors around the world. Transaction in capital markets in foreign exchange and commodities, in stocks, bonds, and derivatives every single day, if you're a stock market investor and you see the market go down, you might say it's representing a good buying opportunity. It goes down more and you say, I see a lot of value here. Now it goes down more and you're losing a fortune. At what point do you throw in the towel? And this is a very good question for most of you that, that do's with stocks. You should know when to cash out once you see a stock moving to a different direction. Especially if it keeps going down, 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 down. The point where it's no longer in the, you know, your broker's account. Trust me, I see it and I learned the hard way. Let's continue. Um, okay. At what point do you panic? At what point do you say, you know what I'm getting out of here. I'm selling my stock. Your sum may drive the market down further and cause still more investors to sell. The selling just feeds on itself. That's an example of how massive change of outcomes can be catalyzed by a small change in initial conditions. It doesn't take a lot. It just takes a snowflake or a few people to change their mind to affect others. Momentum builds and eventually everyone is running out of the theater panicking or capital markets are collapsing. Most people don't see it coming. 
a good working knowledge of complexity theory and complex system dynamic um at least help you to understand the dangers. The best approach is not to focus on individual snowflakes, but we study the systematic instability. By getting a good grasp of complexity, you can anticipate system collapse even without seeing the snowflakes. As long as the Federal Reserve clings to equilibrium models and fails to make use of complexity theories, it will continue to miss bottle bubbles and unestimate systems risk as it is done repeatedly over the past 30 years high intelligence and a PhD in economics are no substitution for good models when you apply the wrong model you will get the wrong results every time alright international networks complexity theory is the most important new tool in economics today not only for understanding US monetary policies but for understanding global capital markets as well because capital markets are complex systems not equilibrium systems every central bank micros models in the world of is obsolete mm. it should come as no surprise that we keep having crisis and meltdowns this is not a recent phenomenon. Consider 1987 when the stock market fell from 22% in a single day, equivalently to about 4,000 down points from today's level. If the stock market fell 400 down points today, it would dominate news coverage and public discourse. Imagine if it fell 4,000 points in a single day in an effective that what happens in 1987. In 1997, <clears throat> we had the Asian meltdown. In 1998, the long-term capital management meltdown. In 2000, the tech stock meltdown. In 2007, the mortgage meltdown. And 2008, outright financial panic. Why do these crises keep happening? The reason is that the Fed is sitting there, or sitting there, in the cockpits trying to fly the airplane but the economic is not an airplane it's much more complex if you're trying to implement policy in a complex system using an equilibrium model you're getting it wrong every time so it's important for the rest of us to understand complexity and see how it applies to capital markets that's more fruitful endeavors than following fed policy debates we can be sure that there are connections, interrelational, inter I mean, <clears throat> interrelations and spillover effects because that's the nature of networks. If you apply graphs, theories, network science to the way financial mods are actually laid out, that conclusion is unescapable. The problem is that these connections can be difficult to see in real life. I give you a concrete example. I was in Tokyo in September 2007, right after the U.S. housing market started to crash. The panic peaked in 2008 with Lehman and Brothers and AIG still the crisis really started in the summer of 2007. As Tokyo stock markets was falling, my Japanese colleagues could not initially see the linkage. They understood there was a mortgage problem in the United States. 
but did not see what that had to do with Japanese market. I explained to them that when you're in financial distress, you sell what you can, nor what you want. In this particular case, what was happening was the hedge fund and other leveraged investors in the United States were getting margin calls on their bad mortgage. They would have loved to sell their mortgage, yet there was no market for mortgage or any other assets backed securities at that time. So they start selling Japanese stock nor because they hate stock but because Japanese stocks were liquid and could easily be sold and raise cash to meet the marginal call on other positions. Even though the two markets do not usually correlate with each other, distress and US mortgage markets cause a significant stimulus decline in the Japanese stock market. This is what my former colleague and the Nobel, Priest, uh, Nobel Prize winner Maroon um, Sholos, <coughs> if I pronounce it right, called conditional cor correlations. It's correlation of two markets that does not um, or does nor usually exist yet suddenly comes into existence upon the happening of the specific conditions. Conditions correlation is a perfect example of what a physician would recognize as an urgent property in a complex system. Here's another example. The United States is the world leader in satellite technology. Nor only for communication and entertainment, but also for milit military and intelligence applications. Boeing is a major firm in the field. Boeing manufactures the satellites in the United States, yet outsourcing the satellite launch in Russia. Since 2014, amnesty between Russia and the United States have grown primarily due to the situation in Ukraine. I let the tension go too far and started cutting off trade and other business relationships with each other. Suddenly you can't launch new missiles to Russia and intelligence eyes in the sky go dark. The dwindling of space-based U.S. intelligence cap capability thus has hidden linkage to rising geopolitical tensions between the United States and Russia involving Ukraine. The linkage may not have been obvious when escalating tension began yet and emerged from the complexity dynamics. <sighs> one analyst or one analyst problem is that many people don't understand what complexity means when using the technical way. Many throw the word complex around as jargers or use it as interchangeability with complication. In fact, complication and complexity are two different conditions. When the terms are used in a technical sense, for example, if you take the back off a Swiss watch, what do you see? There are gears, wheels, springs, jewels, and other components that's a complex system, to be sure. Still, an expert watchmaker can open the watch remove the gears and clean or replace it in order to fix the watch. The watchmaker then closes the case and the watch is as good as new. 
Now imagine you take the back off the same watch and instead of gears you find a metallic liquid soup. How do you change a gear now? That's an imaginary example of complexity in which the watch movements have gone through a phase transition from a solid to a liquid. Now the watch maker crabs fail him. Old models don't work. It's like a pour a pot filled of water on a stove. You turn up the heat and for a long time a pot is still full of water. Suddenly the water turns to steam and the pot contains the same H2O molecules yet the molecules have gone through a phase transition. The water molecules now exist in a different state. The water has gone from liquid state to a gaseous state. If you have ever watched a pot of water boil, you know that before the water turns to steam, the surface becomes bubble and turbulent. If one of, if one was a anthropomorphic, a molecule in a pot of water coming to a boiling, that molecule does know if it wants to be water or steam. It thinks water steam, water steam etc. criteria, it can decide which to be. Suddenly the um, turbulence erupts and the water turns to steam. Still, if you turn the heat down, the surface reverts to water. That turbulent surface is where each water molecule passes from one state, water, to another state, steam. That's a good metaphor for where the world is today. We're out of an old state that exists prior to 2007, yet having arrived at the new state. We're on the turbulent bubbles surface and investors are quite confused. Okay. Alright, let's continue. Complexity and policy. Now this is, this is another important one. The good news is there's a lot that can be done at the policy level to reduce the risk of capital markets. Complexity is the bad news is that policymakers are not taking any constructive steps in the direction. Complex systems collapse because they are unsuitable beyond or unsustainable beyond be um certain size or scales. Either the merchant inputs are too great to sustain the system or the interaction are too enormous to remain stable or both. In either case the remedy is to descale the system in a uh, sustainable level before a collapse occurs. What does the, the ski patrol at Epson Mountains do when they see an avalanche danger? They go out early in the morning before the first skiers arrive. They climb a ridge line and they set off dynamite charges. They actually blow up the snow and cause it to go down harmlessly before the, it's collapsed spontaneously and kills skiller I mean, and it kills skiers. What does the United States? Forest Service do when they see massive forest fires dangerous. 
they actually start a controller fire to burn off the dry wood so that a light bolt or campfire doesn't set off an even larger um, camouflagation that does a lot more damage. The amount of dry wood in a forest or the amount of snow on a mountainside are examples of scaling metrics and complex systems in capital markets. We have a scaling metrics as well. These include measures such as growth size or derivatives, asset concentrations in the banking system, and total assets of the larger banks. These are the financial equivalents of unstable snowpacks and dry forests. Just as forest range and sky patrol these scales, the system they manage so regulators should regulate descaling and banking systems. For those who are bankers, y'all will know that. If not, please find some book and do some research on that. We should break up the big banks into small units, making them like utilities, where they are served as useful functions and get paid a fair amount for their function. But no more than that. Even if we do break up large banks, that doesn't mean they can't fail. It just means that that when they fail, it won't matter. The point is not to eliminate failure. The point is to eliminate catastrophes or catastrophes. Collapse that arise from failure. We should also ban most derivatives and bring back the Glass Steagall's Act, which kept banks out of high leverage and risky security business. Opponents of breaking up big banks argued that size creates efficiency that reduces the cost of banking service for consumers. Yet those efficiencies, what are called first order benefits, are small compared with the second order cost of catastrophes collapse. In other words, banking lobbyists are good at touring the um, benefits of a big bank. In terms of typical economics of scales and global um, competitiveness, they totally ignore the second order costs that are borne by society as a whole. The long term benefits of not having a collapse will outweigh the short term costs of descaling the, the system. That's not a calculus that policy makes are really capable of doing because they don't understand the complex system dynamics at play. I don't see any signs that regulators and bankers really comprehend complexity theory. Still, they do seem to realize another system collapse is coming. The United States is not getting the growth it needs to pay the debt. Derivatives are piling up and the bank control washes and the financial system is failing. Gold is the only sensible insurance in the state of unfairness. Uh, fi financialization of economics. The past 30 years have witnessed the extreme financialization of the economics. This refers to the tendency of generating wealth from financial transactions rather than from manufacturing, construction, agriculture, and other forms of production. Traditionally, financial facilitates trade, production, 
and the commerce. It supports other activities but was not an end in itself. Finance was a little bit like grass or yeah greases on the gear. A necessary ingredient but not the engine itself. But in the last 30 years finance has metastabilized it and has become like a cancer. It acts as a parasite on a productive activity. At the time of the crisis in 2008, the financial sector of the U.S. economy represents about 17% of the stock market, capitalization and 17% of the GDP. That's an enormous percentage for a facilitation activity. Why should the banking sector be 17% of the GDP? It should be perhaps 5%, which is closer to its historical share. Now, finance has become an end in itself, driven by greed and the banker's ability to devise arcade ways to extract wealth from the complex society. The difficulty is that the means bankers use to extract wealth add to complexity without adding value. Extreme financialization almost destroyed the global economics in 2008. As a result of mining gold, stocks increased at a fairly steady rare. In the past, there were occasionally large discoveries, although there have not been any in more than a hundred years. It was in the period from about 1845 to 1898 when there were some large gold discoveries. Since then, annual outputs have been slow and steady at about 1.6% a year. Interestingly, gold stock has been increasing at about the same time or the same rate as the global population. Results in Honest money is almost as if gold scarcity were heaven sent from this purpose. Still, if you have honest money, you can't financialize the economics because finance couldn't grow any faster than production plus innovation. What the finance industry needs is either leverage or credit instruments, I mean, <clears throat> credit instruments, derivatives. Swamp, futures, options, and various kinds of notes and commercial paper. You need all of what I call possible money. A phrase I use in my first book, Currency War, in order to keep the game going. Finance does not create wealth. It extracts wealth from other sectors of the economics using inside information and government subsidies to do so. It is parasitic or so-called Rentier activity. Finance needs to be contained before it triggers the next crash. This involves breaking up big banks, banning most derivatives, and constraining the money supply. And the role of the Federal Reserve. Given its importance, the Federal Reserve is one of the least understood major institutions in U.S. society. The Federal Reserve is a comp complicated, multitude system. Most attention is paid to the Board of Governor in Washington. The Board of Governor has seven members, yet there has been vacancy lately, so the Fed Board has been operating with 
as few as three or sometimes four members. The next tier of the system consists of 12 regional Federal Reserve Banks located in the major economic centers around the country. These include the Federal Reserve Banks of New York, Federal Reserve Banks of Boston, and the Federal Reserve Banks in Philadelphia, San Francisco, and Dallas, and other cities. These regional reserves banks are not owned by the United States government and are not principally agencies of the United States government. They are privately owned, privately owned by the banks in each region. For example, Citibank, JP Morgan, Chase are both in the New York region and therefore own stocks in the Federal Reserve Banks of New York. When the one discussion of private ownership Many act like it's a deep, dark conspiracy, yet it has been this way since the Federal Reserve System was created in 1913. The private ownership is well known and not a secret. The Federal Reserve Bank is prim privately owned at the regional reserve banks levels. Still control of the entire system resides in the Board of Governors appointed by the President of the United States and confirmed by the United States Senate. So the system is an unusual hybrid of private banks ownership with government oversight and control. And we will stop from there. And mind you, this is what is the case. I mean, this is what is gold. This is section, this is chapter three, section one. If you tune in next time, I will complete this section Oh, chapter three. Um, as I go for the chat room now, see who's on here now. Yes, Max is gold. What's good? You can hear me good. I hope that you um able to share this on your your side on the message board on YouTube because I am going through a series of this. And oh, I forgot. For those who's watching this video, y'all can hit the like button. <laughs> I'm not going to say it's PRK because I don't have mods right now available. I might um, make you as mods soon, um, Max. I can't do it now because I'm using a different system. But this is very informative. This is something that people should get an understanding about gold. It's not taught in school. Math is not taught anywhere, to be honest with you. And like books like this, I'm just presenting information so people get some form of clarity. Um, yeah, so like I said, I hope this information was useful. You know, uh, I want y'all to tune into the next one. I would like y'all, if y'all could do me a favor at the end of this, please leave your comments, your thoughts, and opinions at the end of this video. Um, please share this video. And not only this video, but I want you to go back on my page on YouTube and find previous videos of the series on uh, what is gold. Once it's done, I will put it as a playlist so people get the full completion. It's going to be a very lengthy playlist because this is a good read. Um, and I think it's very um, good to know and have an understanding to what is here and what is to come. But other than that, you know, I appreciate people for listening.